This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Today we're marking the 950th anniversary of Richmond Castle in North Yorkshire. Towering above the River Swale in the heart of the Yorkshire Dales, the castle is one of the finest and most complete Norman fortresses in the country with a history stretching from the Norman Conquest right through to the First World War. And joining us to explain more about what makes Richmond Castle so rich in history is Senior Properties Curator for the North Region, Dr Mark Douglas. So Mark, when and why was Richmond Castle first built? Well, Richmond Castle is entwined with the Norman Conquest by William the Conqueror in 1066. The North at the time was under the rule of two Saxon earls, Earl Edwin and Earl Morcar. After the Battle of Stamford Bridge, where we all know that Harold Goodwinson marched up the country to fight the uh, the Viking invaders at near York at Stamford, they actually fought that battle. They'd actually been defeated slightly earlier at the Battle of um, Fulford. Um, interestingly enough, though, once Harold marched back down this country to face the incoming William the Conqueror, it seems that Earl Morcar and Earl Edwin... Sort of was like you were looking to do so, and they, they stayed in the north. Now, what happened was that once the William had taken over the control of this mainly southern Britain, he left, and I think most people don't sort of realize this, he left a lot of Anglo Saxon uh, nobles in place. And two, of course, these was Edward of Morcar. But of course, things always don't work out like that. Eventually, there was um, insurrection, there was a rebellion in the late 1060s, and of course, Edwin and Morcar were involved with this. And William decided to do something, he marched north with a company of men, and proceeded to lay waste to the north of England. And this is what we call the... The harrying, the harrying of the north, yes. That's right, yeah. And it was sort of 1069, 1071. Now, obviously, with the, with the rebellion, the, the leaders of the rebellion and the uh, the people have been subjugated, and the leaders themselves are basically disempowered. And, of course, one of these people was, was Earl Edwin, probably killed assassinated on his way back up into Scotland to get out of the way of William. And William took over his land and all the lands in the north and basically divided them up among his loyal followers, particularly men who'd, who'd fought with him at, uh, at Hastings. Mm. Now, interestingly, most of these people were Norman. But one of the exceptions was a chap called Alan Rufus. He was a Breton knight and he'd fought with William at Hastings. And he was awarded Earl Edwin's land in North Yorkshire which was a huge amount of land he was, he was given. He was effectively, in modern parlance, he was effectively French because he was from, he was Breton, so he was from Brittany, effectively. Uh, Brittany, that's right, that's yeah. exactly right. Um, in modern parlance, yeah, they're all from France, but of course they're all duchies and they're, they're self-governing duchies in France, so it, they're connected but not entirely subject to each other. So it's, it's a, it's a geographically related and speak the same language but not necessarily politically affiliated. Exactly, I mean, the Normans themselves were basically the Vikings, you know, so there's a, a disjuncture there. But of course, this is why, obviously, being Duke of Britain, that's why William the Conqueror wants to be king of England. He wants to be a king, you see. Mm. Yeah, so he basically makes these very sort of judicious decisions to split the land up. And he gives this huge amount of land that once belonged to Edward of Mercia to Alan Rufus. And consequently, making Alan Rufus one of the richest men, so the story goes, one of the richest men that's ever lived in England. It's from that point onwards, then, that Alan embarks on the, uh, the construction of Richmond Castle. So that's the very start of it, 1071. Was it always called Richmond Castle at that point? Bearing in mind that these people are effectively, <laughs> as we say again, Frenchmen. Well, the, obviously the French for Richmond is, is uh, Richmond, which is uh, means strong hill. Ah, of course. So that is where we get Richmond from. 
but obviously Richmond's then spread out through the whole country and also throughout the whole world. So there's Richmond's everywhere now. <laughs> yes. So you've just described then, Mark, how Rufus, Alan Rufus, was one of the richest men in England at this time, having acquired all this land up in the north of England. He must have been in a strategically significant location as well, as you've just described, the High Hill idea. Can you tell us a bit more about why that location was so important? Yeah, the thing is that you've got to remember that William the Conqueror didn't give land away for fun of it. There's got to be a, a reason behind that. It's a reciprocal arrangement. We can call it feudalism between his retainers and himself. So he gives the land to various people and those people look after that piece of land and they make sure that nothing's going to overtake or come and threaten the power of William the Conqueror. So, of course, the North is particularly important because, one, that it's basically still a sort of fractious and it's unpredictable and things can kick off at any time. And secondly, it's a buffer against Scotland, which is another important point. That's why we get you know, these big, big land holdings in the North and further up from Richmond is the, is the Bishop of Durham, who's a really huge landowner. Again, the Bishop of Durham is, the, is placed there in the what they call the Platlet of Durham to act as a buffer between England and Scotland. So the, the idea of where Richmond is as a castle is very strategically thought about, and it's also strategically placed because, as far as we know, there was no settlement at Richmond prior to the Norman Conquest, 1066. It looks like the earliest settlement was at a place called Gilling, which isn't a million miles away from, from Richmond, but there was a, a royal centre there and probably a royal centre early on, and a, uh, a memorial centre and a, an Anglo-Saxon monastery. But even so, that even, even Gilling itself and, and then later Richmond, what they do control is two major routeways, and those two major routeways exist today. One is the A1, the road north from Durham to London, or from Scotland to London, if you really look like, put it that way. And secondly, there's the route that goes from Richmond west across the Pennines, which is now the A66. So it's on a junction, a, very, a particularly important road, which is recognised by the Romans. It was recognised by the, uh, the, the Iron Age people. There's a massive Iron Age settlement at a place called Stanick, which is the historic site. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, the, there's a whole series of castles and Roman forts that go across the A66. And of course, there's the big administrative centre of Catrick, both Roman and then later Anglo-Saxon. So it's a very important area. And I think that's why they've gone for that. Yes, with historical precedent as well, and the Normans treading in the footsteps of the Romans and people before that. It, it was obviously well-trodden land that uh, mm. they could mm. see was significant for a number of reasons. How much land then did Alan Rufus control in the north after his, after his service to William during the conquest? An enormous amount. He controlled lots of land in Lincolnshire, but the main land holdings were in North Yorkshire. And it looks like, I'm trying to work it out because there's like three districts that became incorporated. It looks like around about approximately 900 square miles. Wow. This letter became known as the Honour of Richmond. These manors and estates are all piled together to make up what they call an honour. That's vast because that's... I mean, how big is England in terms of miles north to south? <laughs> well, I don't really know, Tillikens, but if you think about if you, if you think about the geography of the area, you think of the River Ure in the south. The River Ure runs down Wensleydale through Ripon and then out towards York, and where it changes the River Ouse. And then the River Tees, which runs through Teesdale and out to, to the sea at Middlesbrough, basically from the Pennines to the sea, almost all of it was owned by Alan Rufus. That's remarkable. So let's talk about the castle itself then. It's taking form on the top of this hill. What did the earliest form of the castle look like? 
we think of the Norman Conquest and we think of the early castle buildings that took place. And a lot of these things that were temporary emergency type structures that were thrown up quite quickly and what's become known as modern Bailey castles. So basically what you do is you dig a ditch around ring of the earth and you throw the earth up in the middle and you create a big mound and there we go, there you've got a castle. They're all over the country from Sussex right way through to Northumberland. And these are the early ones. These are the things that first put up. So uh, we think of the famous one in York, which is um, was his Clippers Tower, which was built by the Conqueror on his way back after Harry in the north. But Richmond's different. It's an enclosure castle. Also, it's built of stone from a very early date, which is quite significant because all these early castles were built of earth and they're built of timber. But it looks like Richmond was conceived of as a, a stone castle, the big enclosure wall with a big fancy gate and a, more importantly, a big hall where Alan would receive guests and, and act as a bit of an overlord, which mm. sits on the very precipice overlooking the river. There's a big cliff below there. It was a very impressive place and a very impressive statement of Norman control, what now had become the status quo. You know, they're basically now the, the Normans are in control of, of England. And secondly, what the castle also possessed was a settlement. So the settlement of Richmond itself, if you go to Richmond today, you'll see the marketplace at Richmond. It looks like the marketplace was incorporated into the design of the castle. So not only did Rufus establish a Norman power base in terms of a castle, he also established a trading post next to the castle and imported people into it. Mm. So the, it was a quite a strategic idea and a quite a, you know, a telling sort of series of gestures. Yeah, almost became a sort of social magnet for people to gather around in terms of trade and obtaining produce and supplies and this sort of thing. And I suppose at the same time, they would do administrative things and probably have contact with people who are coming in and out of the castle. So in a way, it's a bit like um, like a town hall we might have today or something with a marketplace next door yeah that's a similar sort of thing you know administrative center there was justice dispensed from there there was you know the idea about who could trade with who who had paid levies and taxes all those things was sort of gathered together in one particular position hmm. from somewhere that was actually basically uninhabited so how did this giant castle with its really tall walls and this really immense fortification sitting on the edge of a precipice effectively overlooking a river how did it develop over time did it how long did it take to build because those walls are impressive, aren't they? Are they impressive? It didn't take long to build. Those Most of those walls you see now today at Richmond are 11th century. Basically, it was thrown up pretty quickly. Hmm. The, and the gatehouse too. So you can see this. As you walk around there today, you can sort of understand which bits are the early stuff and which bits are later. Because obviously, castles do fall disrepair there, and they have to be repaired. There's actually additions made to them. Hmm. But generally speaking, you know, it's the most complete 11th century castle we have in the country. So virtually, most of what you can see is this 11th century. Would we say roughly less than 10 years that it took to sort of build in the main? Yeah, I would say 10 to 20 years, yeah, for most of it. Okay. So what happens after Alan Rufus establishes his power base, effectively? Because obviously uh, no one lives forever. <laughs> uh, <laughs> does he have any heirs? Yeah, well, Alan Rufus is, dies in 1093, and he's succeeded by his brother called Alan. His brother Alan, right. and he was he was Alan Noir. So basically, what they did, they, they distinguished between the two brothers called Alan, one Rufus, which means red. So obviously, we assume either he was he had red hair or he had a very ruddy complexion, and Alan Noir, who was had black hair. Right. So he's Alan the Black. So Alan the Red and Alan the Black. We don't know what exactly Alan the uh, his brother got up to, but you know he was again part of land, a lot of land in Brittany, uh, and certainly inherited the honor of Richmond. And it wasn't until his son came along, Conan, 
Conan the Fourth, Duke of Brittany. Now, Conan was a very important chap and very rich and uh, extremely powerful in both England and in northern France, if you want to put it that way, but certainly Brittany. And um, he made another massive statement to do with his position as the Earl of Richmond. He was the second Earl of Richmond, he was now called. And he built the Great Keep at Richmond. So the Great Keep now stands today, towering above the town. It's an iconic sort of landmark in Richmond. It's the town council's kind of emblem. So it's, you know, it's really important. And the keep itself was built on top of the gatehouse. So on top of Anna Roos's gatehouse, they incorporated the gate into its lower stories. And then they moved the gate next door. So you go to Richmond now, you'll see the keep. What you're actually looking at the keep is the lower part of the keep is part of the 12th century gatehouse. So the 11th century gatehouse, and next door to that, there's a new gate, which again is a, a very early gatehouse. And that's the tower-type structure that you see that might be a little reminiscent of a church tower, for example. What, that's as, right, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. A bit, it's a bit more stocky. But yeah, you know, the classic idea of a, of a castle, very four-square, strong, imposing, embattled castle keepers, which was built there by, by Corden. So Conan and Rufus, the two of them, have effectively created, looked after, and then Conan has um, somewhat remodelled the castle into the form that we kind of know it today. But how did it gradually fall into decline? Because obviously Mm. what we walk around today is a relatively grassed area with some uneven walls and some also some remains of buildings inside. So how does it fall into decline? There's specific reasons for most things. I mean, they're difficult to gauge this far forward in history, but it looks like the particular problem that Richmond had was the fact that it was owned by the Dukes of Brittany. So there was a conflict of interests on the part of the Duke stroke Earl of Richmond when there was tensions between England and France, which, goodness me, there was tension between England and France in the Middle Ages, and which were their fealty went, which were their, their sort of um, loyalty went to, uh, to the French king, or did it go to the English king? And in times of national tension, even with Conan himself, who basically was forced to abdicate the dukedom, the king was simply to take the castle off the Dukes of Brittany and give it to somebody else. Yeah. Now, being given a castle doesn't automatically make you want to um, to really sort of think, well, I want to live there and look after it. So basically, there was never a really a massive amount of investment other than royal investment in the castle after the 13th, early 14th century. And so this sort of this piece of land flip-flop between owners even like the Duke of Gloucester, who later to Richard III, was awarded the castle. But he really didn't do much work to it. It was just sort of part of the centre of a huge estate. Mm. It's part of this, the centre of the, still the honour of Richmond, but not really somewhere they took a great amount of interest in. And things move on, and, and it just basically just got less and less looked after. And by the early 16th century, it was noted it was in a serious state of decline. I understand that the um, military took over the castle later on in the 1800s and made some mm. further alterations. So what alterations did they make? It looks like that in the 1840s, 1850s, the castle was taken over mid the headquarters of the North Yorkshire Rifle Militia. Now, the militias were a body of men that were put together across the country, and they were sort of a part-time soldiers. We had no real standing army at the time. And you would join the militia, you would serve for so many days, and you were paid full army rate, and then you would let go again, and you'd come back later on. It became the headquarters of, of the North Yorkshire Rifle Militia. And the militia set about creating a barracks there. There was a, a barracks built along the one side of the curtain wall, a huge barracks with I think it was three, three to four floors, and offices accommodation. And also what started life as a butcher shop and storeroom, but then was converted to a military cells just inside the gatehouse. 
And they also demolished some of the buildings that were there, cleared away the rubble and, and ruins, and also built up the ground to create a prayer ground. So become a, a military centre for the, the North York militia. Do you know how many soldiers were stationed at that particular location? I, to be perfectly honest with you, I really don't know, but I think at some point, you know, these militias could number up to a thousand men. Now, whether this was a thousand men serving all at the same time or a thousand men enlisted to serve at various times, I don't think that there's extant pictures. We can still see photographs of the barrack block. I don't think it would have taken a thousand men, but let's say 400 right. at any one point. Being part of a militia, would we class them as militiamen or as something else? Is soldiers the right description? They were the riflemen, actually, because it was a, it was a rifle uh, militia, so they were, they were riflemen. And what conflicts were they preparing for then? What what was the purpose of having these people in that particular area? Basically, we'd just seen the, the French Revolution, the Seven Years' War with France, and of course, up until 1815 was the Napoleonic Wars. So that was always on the back burner all the time. Even to the mid-19th century, there was always this possible flaring of, of conflict where France was always a constant threat. And that's why these militias were kept. The militias would allow a full-time army, which wasn't a, a great deal of a full-time army, but they would certainly allow as a reserve stock of soldiers for the soldiers to go to fight in various actions on the continent or even indeed earlier on in North America. But interestingly, what was also clearly very much on the minds of the politicians of the day was local and national insurrection. So garrisons like Carlisle and Berwick and York and Richmond were kept on reserve to put down any revolutionary um, insurrections in the country, you know, the people who massacre, that sort of thing. That, there was a, a constant threat of what had happened in France might happen in England. And ah, so that yes. was basically why we kept these people on reserve in the country. Which we've Not discussed in the uh, episode on Napoleon. So had Napoleon actually launched an attack into the south of England via the Channel, then perhaps uh, these riflemen at Richmond Castle might have actually been brought into action and perhaps sent south to meet Napoleonic forces somewhere in the middle of England, potentially. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. Yeah, Mm. without a doubt. That's really interesting. Okay, so let's shift further forward into time then, into the 20th century. The castle comes back into military use during the First World War, but not as you might expect. Can you tell us what no, happened no, there? No. By 1908, the castle became the headquarters of the Northumbrian Regiment of the new Territorial Army. So again, a bit like the Territorial Army we have today, it's a reserve force to uh, any kind of standing army, which there wasn't a massive standing army at that time anyway. So it's it just, just in case, you know. But of course, this all becomes serious during the First World War of 1914, and this standing army is needed, and we need some recruits pretty darn quickly, you know, to get this thing sorted. So... Richmond, at that point, then became the headquarters of the Non-Combatant Corps. And the Non-Combatant Corps was a a regiment or a a division that was made up of soldiers who would serve in the army, but would not take part and they would would refuse to take up arms against a foreign enemy. So they would, as a conscientious objection to the taking of life, they did recognise the fact that the country was in dire need of support. They would join the army and do support roles, medical drivers, cooks, that sort of thing, but they would not take a rifle and fight. And there's also this group who were there, wasn't there, called the Richmond 16. They were all conscientious objectors, I gather? No, they were different. They were actually absolutist objectors. So the Richmond 16 were men who refused to do any kind of military service because they saw all military service as serving one end, and that was to kill other people. And so the conscientious objectors had a conscientious objection to take the, the taking of life. 
but they recognised, like I said, the idea that there was a, a duty or there was a, a duty to perform in defence of the country because, you know, as in their eyes, the enemy was barbaric and they were just going to come to take life and they were going to overrun Europe. The absolutist objectors objected absolutely to any form of military service, any form of conflict. Mm. And it was the Richmond 16 who were basically all sent from different areas of the north of England to Richmond. They weren't basically based at Richmond. They were sent to Richmond into the cells while the military powers of be deliberated on their actions and what the consequences of their actions might be in terms of punishment. Now, they left their mark at Richmond Castle in these cells. Can you tell us about some of those marks that we can see at the castle today? Yeah, there's a, there's a remarkable set of drawings and um, inscriptions that they undertook whilst incarcerated. They were incarcerated for about, I think it was about a month and a half. It wasn't a massive amount of time. But while they were there, they left their marks in pencil on the plaster walls. Now, remarkably, they still survive today. I mean, you, I just can't imagine how some regimental sergeant major didn't say, you know, get that stuff off that wall and get it whitewashed again. There's eight cells in the Richmond cell block. And other than one, which was actually painted over, each of those cells contains some and if not lots of graffiti, as we put it, that refers to the, um, the incarceration of conscientious objectors there. So the, the absolutists. And it, they arranged them, passages from the Bible, reasons why they'd think we shouldn't be at war, expounding their philosophy about peace and harmony, and also down to even one of them, a chap called Gaudi, who um, draws a portrait of his mother on the wall, which is quite touching. So it's, just a, it's a record of their brief stay in Richmond. Do their messages survive quite well or have some faded over time and now sort of disappeared? I'm, I'm sure we've lost some. I mean, in the last 14 years that I know of, uh, I don't think we've lost anything to a great extent, but we have had a recent a restoration project that's been carried out on the cell block at Richmond, particularly to stop the damp getting in. It was, it was going to be quite a damp building to try and stabilise the whitewash upon which they've um, made their mark in pencil. It's all very friable and it's all very, very fragile, but it's hanging in there for the time being anyway. The cell block then of the eight cells and the Richmond 16, they were waiting there for something to happen, I presume? Yeah, well, the Richmond 16 would never have been in the army, other than the fact that there was, by 1916, conscription. So where you could decide not to join the army, you didn't want to, when it was a volunteer thing, you know, you went down and volunteered. By 1916, things were getting a bit serious and needed more men, and they, they, they actually brought in the concept of conscription. So once you were, you're forced to be conscripted into the army, they got into there, and they basically said, you're not going to do anything. We're not, even down to things like they wouldn't even peel potatoes for the cookhouse. They refused, where possible, not to wear uniforms. So they were just waiting what else was going to happen to them in terms of punishment. And they were shipped off to France. Now, once in France they were deemed to be on active service because you, you're actually in the, in the theatre of war by that time, you're not starting to cell block in Richmond. And now once on active service, once you refuse an order, that was deemed as uh, as insurrection and you could be punished quite harshly for it. And so, of course, naturally, they did refuse to whatever they were asked to do on active service and they were subject to a court-martial. And basically, one at a time, they were all sentenced to death but immediately that was commuted to a, a sentence of hard labour. And they were sent, I know one of them at least was sent to Dice in Northern Scotland to break rocks for a period of 10 years. So did they all survive then effectively, but they had to do this hard labour in various locations? Yes, yeah, they did. They all survived. There's one chap called Brocklesby who, um, interestingly, he drew a picture on the wall of his girlfriend. He was 
thinking about his girlfriend, thinking about his life before, thinking about what you know what was going to be happening in the future, and would he ever see her again? And he was very sentence commuted from death to uh, hard labour in, in Dyson, Scotland. And he basically even then he just walked away and, and he, he legged it and just did you know I'm not even going to do this. He said this is all part and parcel of the same sort of thing. Even at that point they were still struggling against this sort of um, what they saw as a regime that was shouldn't be there and it was doing all the wrong things. And interestingly enough, the girlfriend Annie had waited for him to do his service, which meant not just military service, but certainly the time spent breaking rocks in dice. She herself lost two brothers in the war, but immediately when he came back, his uh, first reaction was to do relief work in Austria. And I think that was a turning point for the relationship. And she thought, well, you know, that that's it. This man is so committed that she just couldn't handle it anymore. And so that was the relationship was all over. But so he, he went from there to do work with what she saw as German refugees. And even at that point, that was, you know, she, she, she sort of saw that as a kind of a, a backlash. Right. I can understand how mm. they sort of grew apart from their political yeah. leanings. So let's move into the English heritage phase of history now. When did English <laughs> heritage assume responsibility for Richmond Castle? And what state was it in at the time? Not too bad, actually. Richmond Castle was taken over by English Heritage in 1984 when English Heritage was formed. Prior to that, it was the Ministry of Works, and prior to that was the Office of Works. So the castle itself was taken into guardianship of the state. It was made a, a monument belonging to us all in 1910. Now, of course, 1910 was a tricky time for anything to be taken into guardianship because um, we were just about to enter in a, into a war. So um, the plan was always, at one point, was to consolidate the castle, make it into a place that would explain a lot about medieval history. The medieval history at the time was the important thing that was seen by the ministry, was the the idea that you know people should learn about the medieval past and the origins of any any of the monuments they took into care. So of course the barrack block was employed right way through the First World War. Following the First World War, there's a chap called Charles Pierce, and Charles Pierce said, "Well, look, you know what I want is a medieval castle. I don't want a great big huge barrack block in the middle of it all. Let's get that down." Uh, right. you know, it was only built in the 1830s, 1850s. And uh, let's reveal the medieval splendor of this, this, this site rather than have this huge, glowering, brick-built barrack block in the middle of it. All well and good, but the plans were scuppered because then the barrack block was actually used as temporary accommodation for people following the First World War. I'm not quite sure entirely what to get. I've never got the bottom of why Richmond itself needed temporary accommodation after the First World War, but it, there we are. It was used as temporary accommodation. And it wasn't only until 1931 that they finally got permission to remove the tenants from the building, and they just basically demolished it. It's, it's fine. The Victorian building was just demolished and flattened down to its foundations and just cleared away. What a terrible was shame. Wonder. I expect there are historians now listening to this, or young young historians who don't know about this story, who are just sort of going, oh no, <laughs> that's terrible. Yeah, We've just yeah. lost a load of history there. It's not an isolated incident. I mean, there was there was incidents all over the all over the English areas of the state. You can think about now and the, the buildings we look after, where what the people in charge at the time in the early part of the 20th century saw as modern accretions. Even things like 17th century, 16th, 17th century buildings were cleared away to reveal what they were saw as the the essential medieval past. They would even re-ruinate buildings that were actually livable to make them look like look like medieval ruins. Wow. So yeah, it was quite an astonishing move. There was one little tiny piece of the building that was a huge barrack block with a, a little sort of single-story extension at one end of it that they did consider, I've got the plans in my office, they did consider making that into the custodian's cottage and museum. But at some point they must have thought, nah, that'll go as well. So the whole thing went. But you can still see it here in pictures. 
But if you go up the top of the keep, particularly this time of year now, when with this very dry spell of weather, unfortunately at the moment with COVID, there's restrictions to getting on top of the tower and top of the, the keep is a bit difficult. But next summer, have a trip to Richmond, go to the top of the keep, and you can see the full layout of the, the, outline, of, the, of, yeah. the of the barracks in the grass as, as a sort of parch mark because the foundation still exists underground. Yes, uh, we've seen this in, in the past with previous hot summers with various locations, which That's has right. always been quite illuminating. So mm. what key features of the earlier castle survive today that are well castle. above ground? <laughs> above ground, I mean, the key features are the walls themselves, which are, are very, very important. And, and, and like I said earlier, a very early feature of a 11th century stone castle, which is like, you know, really, really interesting. The keep, the keep's interesting in, in the sense that it never seemed to be, be lived in. It doesn't look like a place you could live in. There's no fireplaces. There's no toilets. It looks like it's always been almost like an administration block, a building where business was conducted and also a building that was meant to look impressive over the town, sort of sitting there above the town. But I think, personally, the most impressive part of the whole site is, is what we call Scollins Hall. Now, Scollins Hall was, is an, an 11th century building built by Rufus as a, a residential hall with what we'd think of as a, as a great chamber. You know, imagine where we'd have medieval feasts with a, with a raised dais at one end and minstrels and all that sort of thing going on on, on the first floor. And that is the most complete and earliest complete domestic hall in the country that sits outside of a castle. So it's an independent building by itself. And it looks like that was obviously the old intention was that Rufus and his constable of the tower of the, of the castle would live in this really impressive building. And not actually, they didn't want to keep it the first instance. They wanted a really impressive Norman hall. So that's the one thing worth, really is worth thinking about if you ever go to Richmond. It's the keeps interesting, keeps impressive, but the hall is impressive. The Scotland's hall is impressive. So many different ways. I gather that there are some legends associated with Richmond Castle, and one of the legends is King Arthur. What do you yeah. know about that? There's a legend, and it's difficult to find out when the legend appeared and what a date it goes to. I'd like to think it goes back quite a long way, but I don't know for certain. But uh, a legend by a chap called Peter Thompson, who was a local potter. Apparently, he was uh, raking around on the cliff below the keep, below the castle, and found an entrance to a small cave. He basically got in there, and he found a lot of tombs in this cave, one of which apparently was the tomb of King Arthur. And he also found a horn and a sword, presumably the sword Excalibur, if that wasn't lost to the lake. So it all gets pretty complicated. And he picked up the sword, and then the tomb started to open, and he sort of basically thought better of it, turned tail and fled. And a voice in the background said, Potter Thompson, Potter Thompson, if you'd blown that horn, you would be the, the most famous man England would never known. And Potter Thompson sort of basically, you know, so that's, that's all well and good, that's not for me. So he blocked up the entrance and never never talked about it until obviously he did talk about it and so many legends obviously grown up from there. So yeah, the legends suggest that we have King Arthur sleeping underneath Richmond Castle, waiting the day when he's supposed to rise and regain his kingdom. Now, <laughs> But this is an isolated story. We have this story elsewhere. But the interesting connection with Richmond, I believe, is that Arthur, Duke of Richmond, who was the fourth Earl of Richmond, Duke of Brittany, was heir apparent to the throne of England. He was the grandson of Henry II, and he'd been um, nominated by Richard I as his heir. Now, this is quite difficult for King John to deal with, and John had him imprisoned in Rouen Castle in uh, round about, I don't know, sort of 1200. Mm. And um, he was basically never heard of again. And it looks like the, the idea that he was, he was probably starved to death with his mother, I think it was. And the legend could be a reference to Arthur 
Duke of Brittany as opposed to King Arthur waiting there for his kingdom. So it might be a, a folk memory of the idea that there was once a king who was deposed and done away with by King John, who really should be still there waiting to take his, take his kingdom. And the two stories got mixed up somewhere. And is there real evidence then at the castle of this underground area? Nope. That, so that, that's okay. <laughs> Quite simply, no. And that's that's been investigated with geophysical surveys and we have geophysics and say there's nothing, there's no underground stuff anywhere. Yeah, there's always a legend of these sort of things. It's a great story, isn't it? It's pretty story, isn't it? Yeah. There's also the story of a drummer boy who was never heard from again. <laughs> uh, I know it's great. Isn't he it? walked to the beat of his own drum until it was no longer heard. What's the story there? There's interesting a connection again, actually, with the the naming of the towers. At Richmond, you've got the Great Keep. Then we have a set. We have Robin Hood Tower. And why it's called Robin Hood Tower, I don't know. There's what they call the Gold Hall Tower. There's a Fallen Tower, and there's the Southwest Tower. I think it is the Northwest Tower. There's all these towers going, but the Gold Hall Tower is quite interesting. The Gold Hall Tower. There's a legend that there was gold hidden down this tower, and the garrison of the local militia that were based in there in the sort of the late 18th century decided this was worth investigating, and they, apparently they found an entrance to a tunnel. Now, there's always tunnels. You can go anywhere in the country, and I've been to hundreds and hundreds of different monasteries and castles, and everybody will say, ah, yes, because have you heard about the tunnel that links the monastery with the castle or castle with the seaside? Or There's always these ideas that there's a tunnel somewhere. But the suggestion is that the, um, the soldiers actually found the entrance to the tunnel. They couldn't fit down it. So they um, basically uh, enlisted the help, more likely bullied the help of one of the, the drummer boys, who was a bit smaller they were, shoved him down through this tunnel and said, right, follow the tunnel, start walking and keep beating your drum so we can know where you are. And off he went, poor kid, if it's true, probably with a little candle, beating his drum. And um, either part of the, they followed above ground, could hear, quite plainly hear the, the sound of the drum as he went across the marketplace and down French Gate, down towards the river and heading towards Easby Abbey, which is about a mile and a half, two miles away from Richmond Castle. But halfway between the two, the beating stopped. The little kid was never heard from again. But if you go to Richmond today and you walk along the side of the river towards Easby, there's a stone that commemorates the last spot they had the drummer boy beating his drum. And this was all about trying to solve a mystery. And now it created another mystery. Another mystery, yeah. But it'll be just um, a way of embellishing the idea that there's a tunnel between Easby and Richmond. So he definitely existed and he definitely was never heard from again. I don't think he existed. No, I don't think he existed at all. I think oh, you don't? Home, I, think, I think it's a whole made-up story. Ah, okay. So an just urban to myth. Sort of, to... Yeah, just to, to embellish the idea. They're not just saying, oh, well, there's, a, there's a tunnel, like most people do say. And yet he's so commemorated it's... even though he yeah, didn't yeah, exist. Yeah. There's even a cafe, I think, in, in which we call the little the Drum Boy Cafe, I think. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> How much of the castle is accessible, then, to visitors today, even if tunnels aren't? <laughs> <laughs> Um, basically, all of the castles are accessible. I mean, we've got little slight restrictions at the moment with the uh, with the COVID restrictions, but when these are lifted, hopefully in the near, very near future, you can go from the top of the keep down into what, what they call the cockpit garden. So you can do the whole of the enclosure with some descriptions and, and ideas of what was there in the past, and then down in what we call the cockpit, which is an adjunct to the bottom of the castle, which looks like it must, might have been a private garden for the lords of Richmond, connected to their domestic accommodation that was tacked onto the big chamber, what was called Scotland's Hall. And what you do get opposite side of the, of the castle from to the southern side of the castle from the keep is magnificent views across the river. And I think that's another reason, and we don't often investigate that, is why some of these castles may have actually been placed there. They've been purely aesthetic. 
to take advantage of, although it was a very strategically military, strategical point, you know, well defendable, but also quite beautiful to look out from. Yes, and I think you see that with the later country houses as well, don't you? Indeed. They are often yeah. placed at the end of a driveway on an elevated position overlooking the landscape and almost telling guests who come to visit, this is my land and this is my domain, look up at me. Isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you if you go to the top of the keep today, you can't see the whole of the honour of Richmond, but you're going to a fair slice of it. You know, you can look almost down towards York, which is nearly fifty miles away from the top of the keep. Mm. So you get a good panoramic view from the top that encompasses a vast amount of territory. And also, I think that these castles may well not have been designed to be placed strategically in terms of their views, but of course, I think there's an appreciation of what that brings later on. I think then I think that's enhanced. So at Richmond, on one side, there was a definitely a, a wooden walkway that hung over the cliff. Mm. And it looks more like, other than being a defensive thing, which we'd normally would call hoarding, and it looks to me and, and to others that it's probably more like a nice little platform to go and stand and look at nice views across the river. And then below, on the other side of the river, is what's called the the Lord's Orchard. There's a big orchard set out. And then beyond that, there's a hunting park. So, you know, I think the medieval aesthetic and the, the medieval enjoyment of views and uh, landscape is, is something that has been studied obviously but i think sometimes it's something we, we tend to forget about sure we've described a really fantastic place with enormous tall walls a town which has been built out from the back end of it there's obviously this sort of almost sheer drop where the castle overlooks the river swale it is a very impressive site it would have been very impressive when it was brand new it's as impressive maybe a little bit less so as a result of the fact that time has worn away at the edges and it's now kind of a ruin but that castle keep is still there it's a fantastically visually and physically impressive site and it's got 950 years of history behind it so how is english heritage marking the castle's 950th anniversary we're working in conjunction with Richmond 950, which is a local group who are, have set themselves up to organise events and uh, talk, lectures, various other activities across the whole year to mark the 950th anniversary of the castle, which obviously is also the 950th anniversary of Richmond itself, the foundation of Richmond. So um, we're actually been involved in some of, those, some of those things, but mainly we're actually going to under, undertake a community archaeology three weeks to look at some of the buildings inside the enclosures inside the great what they call the great court to look at what we found on some geophysics we did a number of years ago just to try to establish what some of these buildings might be and what they might tell us about the history of the castle okay. so hopefully in a couple of weeks time we'll have even more relevant information to tell you about richmond castle and more history to unearth indeed yes yes absolutely i mean hopefully there's stuff that we've thought might exist Particularly, there's a great chapel that we do think that's on on the uh, on the cliff overlooking the uh, over the river. We might find some evidence for that. We've got pictorial evidence from the 15th century, but nothing on the ground. So we might find something, hopefully, to do with that. I mean, very small trenches, just as a obviously like a, a small investigation to prove or disprove what appears on the geophysics. And if we do get some nice walls, hopefully, we get some dating evidence too to uh, back the ideas up. Well, wish you best of luck with it. Are you going to be personally involved? Yeah, I gave up digging, doing archaeology and digging-wise a few years ago, but I might go and get my trial out of storage and go on a bit of a scrape around in the first few days, yeah. Okay, good stuff. Well, thanks a lot, Dr Mark Douglas, Senior Properties Curator for the North Region. Thanks very much for talking us through the rich history of Richmond Castle. My pleasure. And happy digging. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll discover the story of Gainsborough Old Hall in Lincolnshire as it reopens to visitors under English Heritage's care. The family move out, but the town moves in. In one part, it might be a factory, it might be a cooperage, it might have plasters in it. In another part, it might be rented out to a future earl. Thanks for listening. See you next time.